Brother, do you think they'll drop the bomb? Mother, do you think they'll like this song? Mother, do you think they'll try to break my balls? Should I run for president? Mother, should I trust the government? Hello, this is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone, on this Mother's Day. I uh, I decided to do a Mother's Day podcast. Um, there are many people today who are not able to see their mothers, cannot and should not go and uh, visit them to, to avoid putting them in any sort of danger during this pandemic. Um, so I know that's difficult for a lot of people. It's difficult for um, our older citizens. It's difficult for young people to not be able to see their parents and grandparents uh, right now. And, uh, and especially on a day like this, I know what this means. And, and, um, and so perhaps some people might be feeling a little melancholy uh, on this day, a day in which people should not feel, feel melancholy with the exception of those of us who lost our mothers or no longer, our mothers are no longer alive. Some of us lost our mothers at a very early age. That was not my case, but um, I know that must be especially difficult to lose your mother when you're a child or a young adult. And, um, you know, you like to have your mom around uh, for all sorts of reasons. And it's sad when that uh, no longer is the case. So I woke up uh, this morning thinking about my mother and um, what I would say to her today if uh, she were alive. Um, if I had to drive by slowly and shout it out the window <laughs> or uh, roll around on the front lawn and uh, entertain her. Um, but as I thought about it, I thought about um, what she meant to me. Um, and what would I do if I were to have her here in the studio, um, sitting here now in day 60, what, 62 of my self-imposed uh, isolation, um, in this, uh, in this apartment that I have here when I'm in New York and I decided to stay here at the beginning of this. I had just built my uh, podcast studio a couple of months prior to that, and I thought, well, at least I can, uh, I'll have something to do in this, in this little room uh, inside uh, this apartment in this city that my mother loved. Um, she was not from here, uh, but her sister had moved here, uh, met a, a young Irish-American man, in the 1920s, got married, and uh, they lived on Staten Island. His name was Francis Heffernan. He um, was a lawyer, and he worked for 
Franklin Roosevelt and the whole ensemble of people when Roosevelt uh, was governor here in New York. And he was asked uh, to run for the state assembly as a Democrat from Staten Island, which is in the later years, it's not necessarily a place known for a lot of Democrats, but just elected a Democrat in 2018 to the United States Congress for the first time in a very long time. And so, and so he was my, uh, my uncle Frank and, uh, my mom brought us here every other summer or so to stay on Staten Island uh, for a month. You've probably heard me talk a little bit about that. How we used to brag to people back in Flint that we were, uh, that we summered on Staten Island. Um, but it was great. And, um, we, my mother was in love with this city and, uh, I think uh, that carried on to us because we came here at a very early age and, uh, it's, it was not Flint, and it was really like being at Oz, and um, I think my sisters and I were always very grateful. I have two sisters. I'm the oldest, uh, and then um, I have a sister uh, who is almost 12 months uh, younger than me, but not quite, so that makes us Irish twins, and then we both have a younger sister, and... Uh, uh, she is three years uh, younger than me. Um, both of my sisters live in California, one in the southern portion and one in the northern portion. Um, and we uh, we were very close growing up, and um, I think if they were here, they would agree that we were very lucky to have the parents uh, that we had and very lucky to have the mother that we have. And and on this day, um, <clears throat> I think we, in these last 18 years since she's been gone, she died in uh, uh, 2002 um, at the age of, I believe, uh, 81, 81 or 82. Um, you know, we think of her often. I think of her often. And I, I have the sense that uh, even though she's gone, she's not. And, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, I guess, that, uh, you know, they live on in us, but it's true. Especially if we, if we took the good things from them and integrated that into our lives, then yes. Notice I said the good things. <laughs> All of us have made the, you know, decisions along the way in our adult lives to, to take that which was good and those parts that were of the old era of another time, we left them there uh, where they belonged. Um, but I was, um, I was thinking about this today and I was thinking about the, you know, what a lot of you, what everybody's going through. If you are parents of young children, uh, which I no longer am, uh, but I have heard from many of you of what that's like, you know, when you think about it, um, it, uh, it's very rare. We have not lived in a society for a very long time where both parents, if you're married, um, both parents would be at home and have children with them 24-7. Uh, no going to work, no really going out or being separated from them. And so this has gone on now for maybe, what, two, two and a half months? I don't know if there's anything like this um, before this time, um, at least not since there was compulsory education. Children had to go to school first until eighth grade, and then in the 20th century, it's, I think, still the law. You have to go to school till you're 16 years old. Anyways, I thought I would spend just a few minutes um, thanking my mother for some of those things that I received from her and uh, things that which I'm still grateful for to this day. I'm, I'm grateful that I'm the only one of, of three siblings that um, was old, is old enough to have any memories of our, our grandfather, 
her her father. Uh, he was born in 1868 in Canada, in a little village between Sarnia and London, Ontario, and came to the U.S. because he wanted to be a doctor and went to medical medical school in Saginaw, Michigan. Medical school back around 1900 um, was lasted not even a year. <laughs> they could teach you everything they knew about medicine in less than a year uh, back then. So he became like a country doctor um, and um, either lived or traveled between these three or four villages outside of Flint um, in Elba, Michigan, um, Hadley, Michigan, Davison, Michigan. And, um, and we heard these stories growing up of how our grandfather, who was the country doctor, um, was very much involved in the um, pandemic, the flu, the great influenza is what it was called, 1918, that went on into 1919 and 1920. There were also some some other um, viruses and things that were just before the influence of 1918. Actually, from around 1915 till 1918, there were a number of things that were, things like diphtheria and others that were killing a lot of babies mostly. And, and my, my grandparents lost uh, both a, a baby boy and a baby girl uh, in, the, in the couple of years leading up to when my mom was born. My mother was born in 1921, um, shortly after, just months actually, after um, the last state ratified the Constitutional Amendment giving women uh, the right to vote. And um, so um, my grandfather, her father passed away when I was um, almost three. So I have two or, two or three very faint, brief memories of him. And, but I'm, I've always been grateful for them because one of them is um, him helping me to construct a, a tent out of uh, these blankets that were in the living room, blankets that were on, on, the, uh, on the sofa and one, one on the chair that he liked to sit in. And, uh, and so between the chair and the sofa, he helped construct a, like a tent with these blankets. And I, I got to hide in the tent and camp out in there and surprise the adults uh, when, they, when they passed by. Um, Yes, I know what you're thinking. Early training, right? Um, but um, but my best memory of my grandfather uh, was he played the Irish fiddle. It was a violin, but they called it the Irish fiddle. And uh, and sitting on his lap as a little tyke uh, while he uh, played the fiddle. Jeez, um, you know, I, I somewhere I have... At one point, he made a... Just you know, when record players were just sort of starting gramophones, uh, he made a vinyl record of his some of his uh, fiddle playing. Um, if I don't if I don't find that right after I'm done recording this, I'll I'll, I'll play it for you some one of these days. Uh, it's just it's a nice thing to to have available. And uh, so I'm grateful I'm grateful uh, to my mother for that that I got to know her father in a very small, uh, but in a way that uh, stayed with me most of my life. Being born in the year, in the year after uh, women uh, got the right to vote meant really not a whole hell of a lot for most women in terms of their equality, in terms of how they were treated and the positions that they held, which were none, basically. And uh, so my mother... I may have mentioned this before on one of the podcasts, graduated from high school as the valedictorian of her class. It's a very smart, very smart person. And um, never could really get a job doing anything other than typing and clerking. There was a community college in Flint called Flint Junior College. And she went there for a couple of years to, again, learn more typing and clerking and uh, office, you know, type work. 
uh, for women to do. And, you know, it was, if you knew her, it was clear, and it was clear growing up, and certainly clear later on as adults, um, how much she had going on uh, in her head, in her awareness, in her, um, and how it went unused in that sense that she couldn't, because of the way our society was structured, she couldn't do anything with that. And the more, as the years go on, the more I think about it, you know, the more sad I am. But also, I remember being uh, not sad about it when I, when I sort of all sort of clicked together as a teenager and realizing that um, this is pretty messed up. And so I, I remember at first actually being kind of angry about it and even saying to her, how can you put up with this? Why did, why? And, and of course, you know, women of that age and that era, and well, you know, it's, it's the way it was and did the best I could do. Um, as I got older, the anger turned to, um, well, obviously just, having empathy for her situation, but also um, thinking about, you know, the world I wanted to live in as an adult and what that should look like in terms of uh, what women, um, how they're to be treated and what they're able to do, which very early on, it was, you know, to me, it was, I remember actually, I I started a newspaper um, in fourth grade called the St. John Eagle. It was Catholic school. And the Eagle was the mascot of the school. It was St. John's school. St. John Eagle. And I, I wanted to start my own newspaper. The school didn't have one. And so in fourth grade, I started this paper. And um, I remember somewhere around the third issue, I, I'd written something to the effect of, why can't the nuns be priests? And why can't why don't the priests just go dig dig the graves out at the cemetery at the Catholic cemetery? That was my big modest proposal in in fourth grade. Let the let the nuns be priests and send the priests out to the seminary to dig graves. That was the end of that newspaper. Uh, that was uh, shut down, and um, I started it up again in sixth grade, and it was shut down again. And I started it in eighth grade, and it was shut down then. In eighth grade, um, I asked if I could write the Christmas pageant play for our class, and uh, they said uh, yes. And then the the priest um, saw the script, and that was the end of the play. You see a pattern developing here, I'm certain. But this is... Um, but my mom always stood behind me. She was I never got in any trouble. She was never mad that the paper got shut down. She was mad maybe that the paper did get shut down. She wasn't mad at me. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Um, so uh, there was always that sort of, uh, I didn't have to take a lot of, a lot of crap that maybe other kids would have had to take. Uh, my mom was not um, a, a liberal in that sense, though. She was a, a proud Republican, a conservative. Her father, my grandfather, was a, a leading Republican in the era. In the area, but remember, at that time, this is the early 1900s. They're still coming off the wave of being the true party of Lincoln in the 1800s, and. I'm grateful, though, to my mom for teaching me uh, the importance of conservative values. Not the way we know conservative these days, but the kind of values that said, that, you know, to them, to her and her family, conservative men, um, you you have you have a responsibility to conserve the earth. This is the gift for, that God gave us. And we're to be good stewards of this gift. And we're to conserve the planet in the sense that, that 
the animals and the trees and the plants and what we grow for food and all of that is intertwined and dependent on each other. That was a conservative value back then. Conservation. I mean, that's right. That's the root word, conserve. Conserve also meant don't spend money you don't have. Conserve your money. Be cautious with it. Be careful. Um, the the whole idea of just basic um, family things. Eat dinner at the table. Um, have conversations. Uh, have debates, even. Um, encourage discussion and thinking, critical thinking. All of this, you know... They thought that was very that that was important, and um, and how we treat each other, and how we treat our neighbors and our friends. Um, I remember early on, you know, growing up in the era I did, um, racism uh, was um, uh, nobody had to really kind of cover it up. You didn't have to pretend uh, like racists try to get away with it now. Um, especially up north, but um, um, when she heard kids using language, racial language in the neighborhood, uh, I, I knew immediately we'd hear her call us in to the house because she did not want us hanging around those kids. She didn't want that kind of language um, being used. She didn't want us hearing it. Um, it was offensive, and... We grew up with that, with that sense. And again, my parents were not these; they were not political people. They were not, uh, you know, radicals or uh, anything like that. They just they had a strong sense of right and wrong, and how you're to treat your neighbor, and the golden rule of treat people the way that you would like to be treated. It was a it was a very in that way a very healthy household. Um, to grow up in. I've mentioned before that my mom taught me to read and write when I was four years old before I went to kindergarten. That was the greatest gift. I loved to read, immediately started reading everything, started reading the, the daily newspaper when it came to the house. I grabbed the paper and tried to see how many words I could figure out. Four years old, um, you know, reading the, the basic books, the big picture books, all that stuff. By the time I was in, you know, first grade, I, I was I was reading, by that time, real books and uh, bored to death with school. Um, but, uh, but then I had fun helping the other kids, the other students, teaching them uh, how to read and, you know, in, and teaching them in ways that maybe cut corners, but, but, but it worked for me. <laughs> so I... You know, you, if if somebody else is six years old, you, you can't figure out what the, the adults are saying half the time, but you can figure out what a, a six-year-old is telling you. You know, so I was very grateful for that and uh, being able to read, to learn, all of that. It's very important. I'm very grateful to my mother for that. I'm grateful for... I'm grateful for her talking my dad out of sending me to the Y. He wanted to send me down to the Y, YMCA in Flint to learn boxing. He just, he felt like I was a, a, just a tad uh, too sensitive or something. I don't know what what it was, but there were a lot of bullies in the neighborhood. So he figured, oh, you know, this kid of mine's going to get beaten up pretty quick here. So he wanted to send me down to the to the Y to, to become a boxer. I did not want to do that. There was nothing in my wiring that where I had any desire to hit another human being. The idea was just so appalling to me. Even if they were going to hit me, <laughs> I would just, wouldn't it be better to send me someplace where I learned how to duck? You know, <laughs> or just, I did the old one-two back and forth, you know, something like that maybe, but. Uh, you know, send me to dance class. That would have been better. Actually, I would. I could have avoided maybe being hit, but I did not want to box. And my mom talked him out of it. 
oh, geez, I was so grateful for this. Um, it just, I didn't have really any problems anyway, because I think I brought this up before. I just being the tallest kid in the class, certainly well, the tallest boy, at least the girls were always taller until high school. The tallest boy, the biggest boy, and nobody really messed with me, you know, so I didn't, I didn't have a, a real problem with that. And I did not want to. Um, it's funny, a few years ago, um, this buddy of mine, he's, uh, you know, I was trying to think of different ways to work out and I was in the process of, you know, trying to get in better shape and, and, uh, he suggested, uh, you know, let's just go, we can go to this gym and we can just box, not each other, but, you know, just like hit, hit the boxing thing, you know, the bag. Oh man, I said, I've, I've kept those gloves off me since I was a kid and I've never done it. I don't want to do it now. Said, ah, come on. It's just, it's, it's good cardio. <laughs> so I did it and oh my God, it was so much fun. Not with another person, not hitting a person, but just hitting the, the boxing equipment. And, um, and I did it. I started doing it all the time and I would get up to 300, I, I could throw 300, 400, one time I got to 500 punches without stopping. I mean, not, you know, not taking a break, just one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, and just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And um, I got really, I got good at it. And my, um, you know, I, I, I thought, well, this is, this is actually, this is great exercise because you are beat after you do it. Now, whenever I see like a, a boxing match or whatever, I just think, you know, those, those uh, rounds are like three minutes long, you know, or I don't know, maybe in the UFC, it's, is it, is it three or is it five minutes? Jeez, I don't even know how they last that long. That is, it really takes the wind out of you, especially if somebody's pounding on you. That would be even worse. Um, but, um, but I was grateful for my mother for at least keeping me out of that sort of harm's way um, at the time. When I was 13, I asked my mom and my dad if I could leave home. Um, I wanted to go to the seminary to, for high school, the Catholic seminary in Michigan, uh, to be a priest. There were a number of reasons I wanted to do this. Um, looking back now, to be honest, I think primarily it was because uh, the Vietnam War was going on and I was not going to go and kill Vietnamese. That was the, that was just a decision. I didn't have to take any time trying to think about it or make up my mind. Um, and I mean, obviously, right. If I'm not going to go into the Flint YMCA and pound a kid in the head with a boxing glove, I'm, I'm not, I'm also not going to go to Vietnam and kill people. It's not, not wired for it. So <clears throat> if you were in the seminary, uh, that would be an exemption. I was also, I also had, I had a plan B at that time too. I remember the rule was at that time that if you were the last male in your family tree with your name, so like if my, you know, my, so my grandparents on my dad's side, so that's the Moore name, they had seven children, um, I think four girls and three boys. Um, one was killed in World War II, one of the boys. And so the other, the other two were my dad and my uncle Bill. And, um, and my dad had me and my two sisters. So I was the only boy in our family and my uncle Bill, um, um, didn't have, um, uh, biological children. So he had, he had adopted a boy and a girl, but this whole thing, this whole rule in with the United States military was about the bloodline. I was it. I was the last. If, if I died in Vietnam, I would be the last more um, with that name. Um, because obviously I, I hadn't had any kids at that point. So um, that was my other plan to get out that way. But I also was, I was very inspired by these two Catholic priests. Uh, they were called the Berrigan brothers, Philip and Daniel Berrigan. And they were very much into not just basic social justice. They were hardcore anti-war activists. 
they were constantly committing acts of nonviolent civil disobedience. In uh, Catonsville, Maryland, uh, they went into the draft office where the, all the draft records were, the people that were being drafted to go to, to be sent to Vietnam. They went in there, broke in, busted in or whatever, and took the files out of the file cabinet, took them out to the parking lot in front of the, uh, the, the government building there in Catonsville and uh, poured blood on the records and set them on fire. And they were arrested. They went to jail um, for this. They were doing lots of things like that. And I was so like, wow, these are Catholic priests. That is what I'd like to do. Um, you know, I'm 13. Remember, keep that in mind. I'm 13. You know, certain things hadn't kicked in yet. So um, so I asked if I could go. And, you know, they did not like the idea of their son leaving. Um, I would be 14 when I left. And they were not in favor of that. I was inspired by Cesar Chavez. All the whole liberation, what's called liberation theology, in the Catholic Church, it's all a big inspiration. I mean, I did a lot of reading, um, read a lot of Jesuit stuff. And um, so I could see I was not going to convince my parents uh, to let me go. And I um, then remembered the thing you have to say to any Catholic, especially Irish Catholic parent. You have to tell them, that you have a calling. You have a calling. Um, and, right, meaning that God is asking me to be a priest. And they, they can't stand in the way of God calling me. They wouldn't dare risk eternal damnation for something like that. So I just said, I'm sorry, I think I have a calling here. And right away, they just, oh, man, I can see the looks on their faces. Damn you, God. No, they would never say anything like that. Oh, my God. They went to Mass every day of their lives. Every day of their lives, they went to Mass. Anyways, I got to go. I had to go, and I had to be interviewed by the head uh, bishop-type person uh, at the seminary, and then I had to, the local priest. I had to talk to him and get his approval and all that, and I... I got approval and I got to go. I got to leave home at age 14. Oh my God. There were so many good things about that. Um, if you're 14 and you're listening to me right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was just, I, I, I had so much time to read and think. Um, I could play sports. I could do, I just had some freedom, even though being in the seminary is also being in a very strict, strict uh, environment. But... Um, I remember one thing that the the priest had said, and and I remember my mom saying this too, and and wanting to express why she, she though she was happy I wanted to be a priest, she was very saddened by it too, uh, because I was her only son. And I think it was the it was the priest who said to her. Either that, it was that time or later, I can't remember now. Because um, I think it was the priest, I think it was the it was the priest that came right after because sadly he, he eventually um, committed suicide. And, uh, but he was a, he was a good, a good soul. And um, it helped my parents and many people in the, in the parish. And um, he had said, you know, uh, Jesus, Jesus was an only son. And I guess that meant something. It means something to parents. Whether you're the only daughter or the only son, if you're the only of that, or if you're the only child, right? And it sort of stuck with me. It stuck with my mom. And... um And the story, as we were, you know, told it with Mary and Jesus and all of that, uh, and this, what she wanted to convey to me in terms of, not that I was any more special to her than her daughters, although my sisters would probably <laughs> claim that there was a certain special, special uh, something granted here to the eldest and the only boy, the only 
son, but they also they also know that my mom wanted to make damn sure that they didn't have the restrictions on them as women that she had on herself. And so, of course, they went to college and they built their lives and they did what they wanted to do and have done that through, um, I don't think they would disagree with this. I think they've done that through their entire lives. And uh, and I think on, on some level are grateful also to our mother um, for being modern in that sense, even though she did not get to have it for herself. And so, I don't know, I just, it just made me think about this, um, the priest saying that, my mom saying that about not just what it meant to her, but she felt that what it, what it carried, what I had to carry being the only boy, um, and being in a house that was majority women, um, which I've always thought was a true blessing that I got to grow up that way. And, um, and that my, my mom made it that way too in the house. Um, there was no women's work in that sense that, um, I did the dishes, you know, I vacuumed, I did, I, I, I just didn't do the boy jobs like mow the lawn. Um, but this, um, but when you're the only boy, when you're the only son, and eventually, I think when my parents had to think about that, what if their only son got drafted? What if I ended up going to Vietnam? What if I ended up dead? I think, too, that as I became an adult and began to do the things I did, and eventually becoming a filmmaker, but making films that just upset people right and left over and over again, and they got to worry constantly about me. And I just hated that part of it. I hated that they would hear the vitriol, especially in the later years, you know, on talk radio or Fox News. or um, And they were always worried. Um, and I was constantly telling them not to worry. Don't pay any attention to the noise here. It's just noise. But it didn't matter you know, film after film, and 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 not just from right wingers. I mean, the very first film, um, the UAW, coming out against my first, the UAW that my uncle and family members helped to found back in the '30s through the strikes. But by that, by the time I made my first film, they were in bed with management. They were just giving it to GM right and left, and I didn't like it, and I said so. And I'm not supposed to say, you're not supposed to say that because I'm, you know, I'm a proud union member, still am to this day, and um, not supposed to be critical. Constantly being told that, um, and so you know, with every movie, always this sort of attack and this sort of vitriol, because I just speak the truth as I see it. And, um, you know, my mom had um, passed away um, a few months before the Oscars, when I won the Oscar. And when I spoke out against the war, that was only five days old at that time and was booed off the stage. And, oh, my God, and the level of violence toward me my poor dad had to be a witness to all that. I just felt bad and awful for him that he had to worry about me for even one second. Um, booed when I when I said uh, on TV four years ago, months before the election, that Trump was going to win. Angry, angry people, liberal people, angry at me. Don't tell us this stuff. Why are you saying that? You're just going to make it happen. People angry that 
that I was out there working for Bernie. You're going to get Trump elected again. Working for Bernie. Wow. Nonstop. That's the, I, that's the one piece of this. Me, I don't really give a shit. You know, people can complain all they want um, as long as my conscience is good and I'm saying what I believe to be the truth. But um, my parents had a very hard time dealing with it. And my sisters and I tried to keep as much of it away from them as possible. <laughs> I remember I was trying to finish Roger Me, my first film. I was broke, I was on unemployment. Um, I mean, I, I didn't have anything really. And I didn't know how I was gonna finish the film and there was no way really to get it done. And I remember stopping by their house and they were both in the kitchen and I went in the kitchen and they said, we have something for you. And they pulled out a check from their checkbook for $2,000. My dad at this point is retired from the factory assembly line. So he's just on, on retirement. Uh, my mom, um, my mom is a year away from retirement and uh, working again as a clerk in the township office. <laughs> they did not have any money. <laughs> I didn't know where they had I'm like, where did you get two thousand dollars? Well, you know, we have some savings, uh, and we want you to take this and use this to finish the film. Of course, I needed like you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars to finish it. I didn't think I was going to be able to finish it, and I was so moved by this, and I refused to take it, and they would not let me refuse, and we went back and forth, and finally I said, okay, I'll take it. Um. Over the years, I've met a lot of filmmakers who went to good schools and came from families that had money and, you know, their parents helped them, which is always a wonderful thing, um, and helped them with more than $2,000. But um, for them, for that $2,000 to them was like giving me $200,000. And I, um, I'd never taken any money from them as an adult. I'd never had... Um, I probably stayed. I probably stayed at home too long by the time I moved out. You know, back then, millennials. Uh, you know, we we left home sometimes on our eighteenth birthday. <laughs> uh, I stayed a little bit longer, but um, but I never. Um, I I took care of myself. I got my own jobs and my own work, and I did. I did that. I, I was fine. I didn't need their money, but. Um, this was very, very moving, and uh, it did help me a great deal when I had nothing. My mom got to live to see um, most of most of my, at least half of my career there with my first films. Um, she got to see um, Bowling for Columbine. She got to watch, this was back when they carried the Cannes Film Festival on one of the cable channels, and uh, she and my dad got to watch the ceremony where we won an award for Bowling for Columbine at the Cannes Film Festival. And um, she died about six weeks after that. But I was always happy that she got to, she was so thrilled with this, especially, I gave my acceptance speech in French, or some would call it French. Um, but, um, it was all, it was all good, my friends. And when this day comes along every year now, it's a little, it's a little bittersweet. But I thought today a good way to, to, to acknowledge it would be to embrace it. To, um, to tell you, to share with you, some of these things about my mother. God, I wish this was uh, some kind of massive Zoom we could do today, where you would all be. Here, even if not just visually, just audio-wise, like the, like if there were a hundred speakers in this room and you each had your own speaker, and you could tell me a few minutes about your mother, yeah, that'd be so cool.
you know, growing up is hard. Being a parent's hard. Um, as we get older, we're very forgiving of a lot of things, but also very, very grateful for things that maybe we didn't realize at the time. And that's how I feel. I feel that today, and I feel that really every day. And um, not a week goes by where I don't think of my mom or dad in some way, uh, where I wish that they were here. I'm glad they're not alive now during this thing that we're going through. I'm glad that they did not live to see Trump elected um, or what he has done to this country they love so much. Oh, my God. If this would have been their final years, like this is they would go out of this life thinking that this is what got left behind. Many of you have probably had that situation happen to you, right? They left this world probably just in sheer, utter sadness and and horror that their children and grandchildren were going to have to deal with this. Well, we are going to deal with it. We are dealing with it. And we will deal with it this year, 2020. Thanks for letting me share um, all of this with you. Um, much of who I am is because of my mother and my father and the people that came before them. Um, and much of who I am is as a result of the life that I've created as an adult and um, the people in my life, and you know who you are if you are listening to this. I'm forever grateful for that. I hope I could have been one-tenth of what my parents were to me. I hope I've been that uh, to you. And um, and to those of you um, who I know only through this um, or through the fact that you have been fans of my work over the years, I'm eternally grateful for that. And um, I'm glad that you keep giving me a chance to say and show things that are sometimes difficult to listen to and to see. You know why I'm doing it. It's not obviously done with any sense of um, wanting you to feel bad or to cause uh, you to have any sense of um, harm. I'm trying to undo the harm, and I'm doing the best I can with it. Um, so far, so good. That's that's my assessment of it, and and uh, I have a robust conscience uh, that I answer to on a daily basis. That's a good thing, and that's a thing I was given to from my mom and my dad. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Uh, thank you for everything. Thank all of you, and thank you to your mothers for helping to make you who you are. We're all in this together. You know that. And um, we'll come out of this together too. And I really do believe we will create something different. We will not go back to the old normal. We will have the new normal and it will, it will be better. And we already know the ways that it needs to be better. And we're going to make that happen. Enjoy the day wherever you are. And um, on tomorrow's podcast, my guest will be Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Uh, this is, you've probably seen him on television. He was the head of the bioethics department at the National Institute of Health for almost 14 years. Um, and he has been one of the leading voices of truth about what we're really going through. And he will be my guest tomorrow. Uh, and we are going to get into some things and some things are going to be said that you haven't heard and you're going to hear them uh, tomorrow. So um, please tune in to that next episode, which I believe will be episode 78. Um, this is episode 77. And um, later in the week, I believe we will have the great Roger Waters uh, from Pink Floyd. So we have an interesting week ahead of us. If you haven't seen Planet of the Humans, go to my YouTube channel. It's free. 
Uh, this is our latest film. Uh, it has caused a bit of a ruckus. I'm, I'm happy for that. Um, watch the movie. Uh, everything that we want to say about what we need to do to save this planet is in that film. Actually, not, I would say not everything because we have a, we believe in a 90 minute movie. This probably could have been a three hour movie. So, so Jeff, who directed it and Ozzy, his producer, I think, uh, are planning to do the next, uh, film and maybe even the one after that, because this is a big issue and there's a lot to be dealt with here. So, uh, but if you haven't seen it, uh, please see it. We hit the 7 million mark uh, yesterday. So that was very good. 7 million views on YouTube. I don't think I've had anything like that before on YouTube. So thanks to all who've watched it. And um, we'll also talk about uh, uh, the film too uh, this week. Uh, be sure to check out my Facebook and my um, Instagram and Twitter. I'm posting a lot of things uh, today and over the next few days about the movie that I think you'll be interested in reading. I hope you do. That's it for today. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. And we'll see you tomorrow. When Jesus was an only son As he walked up Calvary His mother Mary walking beside him In the path his blood spilled. Jesus was an only son in the hills of Nazarene. He lay reading the Psalms of David. He let his mother sleep. Mother, pray, sleep tight, my child, sleep well, for I'll be. Shadow, no darkness, no tolling bell Shall pierce your dreams this night